Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Kitty Dry, telling the story of entirely losing her hair, learning she has the autoimmune condition alopecia, and navigating her 20s as a bald woman. In our conversation, we talk about being stared at on the tube, techniques for coping with anxiety, hiding and being seen, social media and self-worth, and finding support online and off. First, let's listen to Kitty's story recorded live at 21 Soho. If you were to pass me in the street, probably one of the first things you'd notice about me would be my hair. And you would be right in assuming that my hair means an awful lot to me. It's something that I've always taken great care of. And actually, I've been lucky enough to experiment with a whole range of different hairstyles. I mean, I can have a bob cut in January and then have long flowing locks by the summer bouncing curls by day, and long straightened hair by night. And for as long as I can remember, my hair has always been looked after by my mum's best friend, Jeanette, who is here. (laughs) I mean, she always knows how to get it exactly right. I trust her with my follicular life. (laughs) But there is one time I can remember when Jeanette was unable to do my hair. So she sent me along to her recommended salon, There I was with a picture of candies from the bake-off and hope in my heart. I emerged an hour later with a bouffant reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher. And I was sobbing in my mum's car. Now, for someone whose hair has always been so important to them, the last 18 months have been interesting, shall we say. So at the end of 2019... I was aware of quite a dramatic increase in my anxiety. I put this down to a few things, namely problems at home, studying for an MA 300 miles away from home, and COVID-19 marching toward the UK in a style not dissimilar to my childhood fears of a zombie apocalypse. So I'm sure everyone can remember their life-changing moment. Mine was at 3.12 p.m., on the 22nd of March, 2020. I was just tying up my hair. And suddenly, there it was. A bald patch, just above my left ear. I promptly did the only thing I was physically able to do in that moment, and that was call my mum. I said, mum, mum, I think my hair is falling out. And then I proceeded to break down crying. Now, that was my first bald patch. And to say I was absolutely terrified was an understatement. The hair that I had always taken such great care of was leaving me. It's like those nightmares, you know, when your teeth are falling out, except I couldn't wake up from this. And over the next few weeks, my hair fell out at an extraordinary rate. I mean, I'd be in the shower and literal clumps were coming out in my hands. I'd be sat doing university work and I could actually watch strands fall off my head, down my shoulder and onto the floor. And there was just nothing I could do to stop it. But mum did come up with one idea. She said, maybe collect the hair that falls out each day. So I did. I started a visual log of hair tufts on my windowsill. I thought maybe, oh, I could see a pattern, you know, I could put a stop to it somehow. Yeah, yeah. But no, 
Instead, the tufts of hair grew more and more, and the bald patches on my head grew bigger. So shortly after this, I contacted and had my first appointment with a mental health charity who confirmed that, yes, I was suffering from severe anxiety and depression. Great! But actually, that was great, because this was the start of me getting better. Uh, I began a course of cognitive behavioral therapy, and I started free writing, where at the beginning of each day, for about 15 minutes or so, I would just sit and write about whatever came into my head. And I did actually revisit this journal for the first time since last year when I came to writing my story. And I have to say, my overwhelming thought was, I am so cringe. (laughs) But there was one entry that particularly stuck out to me, and that was on the 3rd of May 2020. And it read... I feel so ugly. I can't stop thinking about it. I hate knowing that the hair loss is there. I just wanted to hide from everyone. I wore hats and headscarves constantly. I'd wake up each morning to inspect the damage. I'd take really awkward selfies from behind me, just trying to see if you could like see the bald patches from behind. It was actually really difficult taking those pictures. But I think overall, I just was so scared of being seen because I was a 22-year-old girl losing my hair at a time where there is so much importance based on how we look. And it feels like especially young girls are on perpetual display. So any picture I did actually post during that time, I wore this grey woolly hat, despite the fact we had such beautiful weather in the first lockdown. But I just wanted to keep it my own little secret, you know, just for, just for a little bit. And I actually remember probably my most overwhelming thought throughout this whole time was that I really don't want to lose all of my hair. I had so many conversations with my mum about it and each time she would soothe me and she would rationalise with me. And I just, I don't know what I would have done if she wasn't there to be honest. So all of our conversations went a little bit like this. Oh God mum, what if it all falls out? Darling, it'll be fine. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Look at this picture. I know that you can see the ball patches in this picture. Darling, just calm down. Take a deep breath. It will all be fine. Oh, Mum, you're so rubbish at drawing on my eyebrows. (laughs) So, in June, Jeanette came over. She saw, unfortunately, what little hair I had left, and she just said, it's time for it to go. But she wanted to give me a few days to wrap my head around it. Pun intended. (laughs) So the day came. It was the 19th of June, 2020. And I had just been for my first appointment at the local hospital, something that had been massively delayed by COVID. It was with a dermatologist who confirmed to me that I had an autoimmune condition, stress-related alopecia. But he told me that he was going to be referring me to a specialist consultant in London. So I arrived home, and there was Jeanette with the clippers. It was time. I sat down in the kitchen chair and waited. I had a smattering of hair across the top of my head, and it barely covered the mass of bald below. I looked ill. So this was it. My heart was pounding. I heard the buzz of the clippers. I felt them at the base of my head. I felt them run up, and I watched the few remaining hairs falling. And I think at this point, 
I must have slightly left my own body because it wasn't until I actually physically saw myself in the mirror did this whole experience even feel real. I mean, I knew that I was looking at myself, but I did not recognize the person looking back at me. And then I cried. We all cried. I mean, of course we did. I was bald. And then we did also pop open several bottles of Prosecco. (laughs) So for those first few days after the shave, I have to say I still didn't fully recognize myself. But it also didn't take me long to realize how much better I looked. I didn't look ill anymore. I had taken control of something that was really quite horrible and turned it into something beautiful. In a sense, I had lost the battle, but I was determined to win the war and step into this bold new future. (laughs) I posted on my social medias and I received an overwhelming amount of love and support. But I also just really wanted to reach out to my fellow alopecians, as I now call them, many of whom hide away in shame, just as I did. I've actually also put together plans to write a documentary series about how important hair has been to us throughout the ages and its importance in society even today. And just for context for all of you, last June, when I gave birth to this new chapter, I did look a little something like this. Kitty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to see you. And you. How do you feel hearing that story back after so long? It's been almost two years since you told it. It definitely makes me feel weirdly emotional. Because even that day, I, I wore a wig. So for context, what I did at the end of that is I took my wig off. I was wearing this pink wig with a pink fringe and it was lovely. Taking that wig off, I was once again showing myself who I was to a brand new group of people. I think actually I was more nervous doing that than I was telling the story because it was once again revealing the lack of hair. Right. That was a big moment at the end where everyone was applauding so Mm -hmm. enthusiastically and supportively, which was lovely in the room, but a big move on your part. Throughout the story, you told us about occasionally wearing hats, scarves. We know you wore a wig to tell the story. Mm -hmm. I've seen mostly au naturel. Mm -hmm. You have a adorable baseball cap on today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, how do you decide? It really changes. I have days where I feel really confident and I walk out of the house and I don't care. But what gets to me and why at the moment I've taken more of a choice to start wearing a hat more often is it's the double glances and the staring. And I just, sometimes I would rather just not be looked at. Even when I have a cap on like this, it's still fairly obvious I haven't got any hair, but it stops that second look of, oh my God, that's a bald woman. And the first thing that people jump to is, oh, she must be going through chemo. Right. So I think the staring really bothers me. Of course. And after a while, I just think, if I wear a hat today, no one's going to stare at me. Right. And that just means you can have a day, a normal day, without thinking... I can tell that person five seats away from me on the tube is staring at me. I mean, sometimes I will look and then stare back at them and it stops them from doing that. <laughs> but for the most part, I just read a book, go on my phone or and just don't let them know that I can see them doing it. I mean, it's funny, you see all these signs on the tube saying staring is assault. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're looking at that person thinking you're attracted to them or looking at them because they look different. Staring is staring and it's uncomfortable to be on the receiving end of it. Um, it's mostly older men 
that do it. Really? Yeah. And what do you think's going on there? I think they're looking at someone who in their mind should technically be more attractive. I'm I'm happy with how I look aside from my head a lot of the time. (laughs) And I think they're thinking, this is definitely me projecting myself onto it, but they're thinking like, oh, what a waste or something like that. But I, I know that that's my own thoughts and they're probably not thinking that they're probably looking at me thinking ah a bald woman and then they're getting on with their day but I project everything that I feel about my hair loss onto them and it's just assumed that that's what they're thinking about me but I'm probably wildly off if you're seeing a pattern that it's this particular group of people Mm. older men it does suggest a certain freedom that they feel to stare and look Mm. and be curious and to satisfy their interest Mm. regardless of how it's affecting the other person yeah there was a time where I thought oh it's definitely older women but actually I think with older women I realized that actually it was more of like a compassionate stare like oh bless her but with the older guys, it just felt a bit more confrontational. I don't know. I'm, try- I'm struggling to find the right of word. Of course, yeah. But it wasn't... It wasn't kindness. It wasn't... It wasn't kindness, exactly. Yeah. It was the opposite of the people who were looking with compassion. And you said you can tell when someone is looking at you, and you can probably tell the way someone's looking mm. at you in some sense. You also acknowledge that sometimes it's you projecting. Yes. And don't we all do that all the time? <laughs> so what are the helpful ways that you have found, if any, to combat this sense of being looked at in ways you would just as soon not be happening? For a short time, I wore wigs more frequently because I just looked like everybody else. But after a while, I found wigs really uncomfortable. Um, I do still wear them occasionally if I just feel like I want to have a, just a, like a day or or it would suit an outfit. And I'm like, oh, I might just put a wig on today. Oh, yeah. But for the most part, yeah, I found them a bit uncomfortable. I felt maybe like impostery. I, mm. I almost felt as though people would know. They sort of think, oh, that hair doesn't look real. But actually, you know, the quality of wigs you can get these days, no one would ever know. But because I knew I, was, I wasn't wearing real hair, I thought, how are they not going to know? Uh, so the way to combat that is getting one with a fringe, because oh, then there's sure. no like obvious hairline. But it was either that or losing myself in something else, like mm. a book, TikTok or something. And if I was so engrossed in what was going on in my hands, like I, I wouldn't be aware of everything else that was going on around me. And I'm sure at those points people did stare. But if I was in the middle of a great book, that's exactly where my mind was. It wasn't on the people around sure. me. Sure. That seems like a good tactic for many situations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find some people do feel uncomfortable talking about hair around me. Um, like bless her, mum, if she's like, she's doing her hair, she's like, well, what do you think? And she always ends it with, oh, you know, I don't want to be insensitive or I'm really sorry. Here's me talking about my hair. Like, no, no, I actually love talking about it. And I have a friend, Eleanor, and it was my birthday like last weekend. And I spent so much time just playing with her hair. And I said, yeah. are you okay with me doing this? She said, I said, because I don't actually get to touch hair very much oh, anymore. Right, yeah. She's like, oh no, like I love the feeling of it. There's been a couple of things that when I first shaved my head, someone came over to me and was like, oh, I totally understand this. I went through a mental breakdown and shaved my head. And I didn't say anything because it's not quite the same. And it definitely didn't make me feel any better because I'd just gone through a really bad mental time sure yeah. and someone going oh yeah when I had did my GCSEs I had a mental breakdown and shaved my head I was like how is that really the same as what's been going on here and 
There's been a couple of times I thought, I actually don't like that comment that you've just made because that actually is a little bit insensitive. When people talk about hair extensions and stuff, great, go for it. Yeah. You know? Well, it's this double-edged issue here. Like, on the one hand, we're all individuals and we're trying to, like, minimize comparison and Mm. we're each living a different hair life, right? Mm. Like, it's just different. But on the other side of it, being too self-absorbed and thinking only about yourself and everything's only in comparison to yourself Mm. is also, like, a less than desirable way to be in friendship or Mm. in connection with another human. So just being unattending to someone else's experience is not exactly a great trait. But then at the same time, like being able to play with your friend's hair or tell your mom when her hair looks great, Mm. like that's just part of your life, like part of of interacting with someone that is in your circle. Yeah. I loved your comment and your story. Not not exactly loved, that's not quite right. But Mm -hmm. it made me laugh when you talked about the impact of your bad haircut when you had your Margaret Thatcher moment. And I just thought it was so funny. And I'm thinking just in general, we are so subject to the whole concept of the bad hair day. We're like dying because it matters so much. Yeah. And why does it matter so much, Kitty? Hair absolutely controls our life. When you walk out of somewhere and you go and you've got a fresh haircut, you feel so powerful. You know, I still remember that feeling. And, you know, and when you have a bad hair day, it throws you off and it changes almost like your whole your whole demeanor for the rest of the day, you know? And I suppose maybe that's where I have an advantage now because I physically cannot have a bad hair day. Right. So, <laughs> so it's it's good in that sense. Um yeah, that that Margaret Thatcher haircut. I sobbed in my mom's how car. old were you then do you remember yeah i was first year of university so i think about 19 years old oh, gosh, 18 19 yeah. <laughs> you know at a point where first year of university you're still meeting loads of new people and i look like margaret thatcher it was just <laughs> awful i think the nothing hedge- wrong with margaret thatcher but but she's decades 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 older than you when you refer the time you're referring to yeah i mean there's not a lot of great things about margaret <laughs> thatcher <laughs> <laughs> her hair being maybe one of the things that was least concerning about her, I suppose, although it wasn't great. But feeling like her was not fantastic. But it did grow fast and it wasn't an issue so much anymore. But that initial style, I just thought, how are you looking at an 18-year-old girl thinking, yep, this is the style for her? It looked nothing like the photo. I, basically, I think I'm still not over it. <laughs> <laughs> and then especially, you mentioned it's especially for young women. Mm-hmm. It's all exacerbated by social media. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think, you know, just being your mom's generation, I Mm. think you're having a very different experience of social media. Yeah. Are are you digital native? Did you grow up with technology? To an extent, yes. I think I'm part of the generation that still lived a fairly outdoorsy life as a kid because Facebook didn't really come into my sphere until I was in maybe year seven, so 12, 13. I didn't even get my first phone, I think, until I was maybe 11. And even then it was just this little slidey thing. Yeah. So my experience with social media has been not entirely negative, but I see so many people around me who are so influenced by it. I think it's quite sad as well, because you just think everybody else is living such a better life than you. Mm. But it's so selective. Of course, you only put the good things on social media. But in a sense, I think it's why sharing my alopecia was so important, because it was such a sad time in my life that turned into something quite empowering by by sharing it with social media. You know, I mean, I wasn't expecting to put that photo up and everyone be like, oh, you look so ugly, what a shame, you know? But it was nice to see people genuinely come at it with love and say, wow, 
you, like you look great thank you so much for sharing your story and it opened up another side of social media as well because I found the alopecia community on Instagram and it's oh, wow. so supportive and this is one of the positives in a mm-hmm. sea of negatives about yeah. social media is being able to find community like what you're describing the alopecia community exactly and you know it's not to say that there isn't some awful communities out there online there is but one good thing about social media is you are pretty much able to control what you see i don't think you have as much control as you might want i mean you'd have to be so deliberate with the way social media is structured and regulated right now to be able to say that you have real control over Mm. what you're seeing yes it feeds you what it believes you want to see yes so it might feel like this is relevant or this is something that I want. Mm. But I could be wrong because I'm my experience of it because I'm not really particularly active. So <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you what the New York Times told me. So um, I want to own that. I only choose to follow people who are saying things that I want to hear. So that in a sense is very much my choice. No, that is an excellent point. It's true that as you follow people, you're going to get more and more of what you say you like. Yes. To the extent that what you want to see is positive and making your life better, mm-hmm. you could control for a better social Mm. media experience. But I think with so many young people, they're following influencers that could lead them, who knows where they're leading them, even just feeling bad about themselves or that they need to have certain things in order to be okay. It's a really difficult line to walk because you cannot control other people's lives and how they want to live it. And if they want to be online, completely up to them. But recently, I feel like I've taken a bit of a step back and I'm posting less because I don't feel the need for everyone to know what I'm doing all the time. If it's something really lovely, then yeah. But otherwise, it's just, it it can get a bit too much, I think. Sure. And you raised the point earlier that people are self-selecting what aspects of their life they share. Yeah. And so we only see the highlight reel. Mm. So we've known that for a while. It must be approaching a decade that we've been aware that people tend to just put their best moments on social media. Yeah. Even when we know that, mm. I don't think we have enough resources to combat it when we see it over and over and over again. But you're right. When, when you're going through a difficult time and you see people putting all this amazing stuff, you think... Why isn't my life like that? Why am I not living the same life that they're living? Am I doing something wrong? I find, in general, it's the same people posting the great stuff. Those are the people that I then sort of compare myself to. And Mm. it needs to stop. Yeah, you're comparing your hardest moments, Mm -hmm. your most challenging times with someone else's self-selected highlight reel. Exactly. And that is no way to live. No. <laughs> so I love that you're taking a step back and yeah. just claiming some of your time. And because as you said, if you put yourself out there, even if you don't want to be judged, you get judged by likes and some of the choices that social media has made about how they evaluate what is being shared. Yeah. So it's so tough. But Kitty, you talked about how getting diagnosed when you were dealing with the depths of your of your stress mm-hmm. that was contributing to this autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. When you did get diagnosed, at first you were there was an element in your story where you expressed sadness, and then you were saying, "Wait, it is great. Mm. It is great because I can start healing now." Yeah. And you described some of the mechanisms that you used with the CBT and the free writing. I'm just wondering how has that been going? Those techniques were great. Um, for a long time, they worked. I mean, I will I will happily admit, recently it took a bit of a turn, and I wasn't in a great place. I feel like I'm coming out the other side of that now, mm. which is good. Getting the diagnosis of anxiety and depression was quite affirming because I'd felt that way for a long time, and I'd heard the word anxiety thrown around, and I think it is overused. But getting that official diagnosis of you have anxiety and that is why you feel like this 
it made so much sense. And I know now I'm so in tune with the condition that I know when it's getting bad. I know when I'm about to sort of spiral over something and it's sort of bringing yourself back to it and thinking it is fine and everything will be okay. And you just need to take a step back and breathe. Mm. Breathing is so useful. Right. And it's so, it sounds so obvious. We all breathe to live. Yes. But we don't necessarily breathe to heal or breathe to be in our body fully Mm -hmm. or breathe to support our nervous system calming down. Yeah. So do you use specific techniques or? My main one actually is uh, writing lists. Mm. Um, And when I did CBT, I told my therapist that I was writing lists and she said, that's great. That's almost like one of our techniques because if there's a a huge amount of things worrying, it's like, right, write a list, what's actually worrying? And you can kind of just cross off the things that don't matter. It gets it out of your head and onto something physical. And and that's great as well. Oh, that's one of my favorite techniques is to take it out of your body, out of your mind, out Mm -hmm. of your system and get it into something separate from you. So you can see that it is in fact separate from you exactly and then work with it Mm -hmm. oh i love that kitty i love that you're acknowledging that it's not like a one-way path where Mm -hmm. you get a diagnosis you get some support you start implementing it oh everything's fine now Mm -hmm. but that you can have these moments of falling backward Mm -hmm. or having stuff recur and then just figuring out how do i get the support Mm. I need. I know one of your big supports. I have to mention her as your mother. Yes. And I have to acknowledge that mm-hmm. she is a huge important part of True Story because she's our MC mm-hmm. and one of our story coaches yep. and has been around True Story forever. Mm-hmm. And she's really quite a remarkable person. She's amazing. And she's been a huge part of the story, yeah. it sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, I would say no one has been there on the same level as my mom. I mean, like I said in the story, she was the first person I was physically able to call when I saw the hair falling out. And it's funny, actually, um, probably about three weeks before I found the first ball patch, maybe a tad longer, we were in London and she said to me, she said, are you sort of picking at your eyelashes? And I said, no, 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 because she noticed that they had gotten thinner. So in a way, she saw all this happening before I did and she knew that I wasn't in a great place either. Mm-hmm. I know that I wouldn't be the person I am today without the influence of my mom because she's such a, an amazing person and she's turned me into the person that I am today, definitely. Yeah, and it's interesting that you're describing her really seeing you and really seeing what's going on at mm-hmm. the same time you have this experience of not wanting to be seen where you're trying to hide, but there, at least you have this one critical person mm-hmm. who you can let see you and let's see what's going on and let her into everything. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, we're so in tune with each other because it was the beginning of the second lockdown. So that was 2021. My sister was living in London. My brother was at, back at university and it was just me and her in the house. And we just, unless I was working, we were just together all the time and we did everything together. And it was such a perfect time in my life because it was just me, her, our dog, Elsie, and then our three cats. <laughs> um, so we just lived this really happy little life back in Suffolk. And it was, although, you know, I was still in the midst of everything it was such a happy time of my life because it was us two in the house and it was lovely I I really cherished those memories I was wondering about how the pandemic was for you and when you were re-emerging from the pandemic Mm -hmm. how did that go I always say I'm actually quite grateful for the pandemic not because of the destruction it caused in so many people's lives but from a personal point of view I was able to hide 
that yeah. was perfect for me because I got to go through this away from the eyes of everybody else. Only the people that I wanted to know knew that it was happening. And for a time, it literally was just myself, my mum, my brother and my sister that even knew it was happening. And then I started to tell a couple of friends and then we sort of told wider family. And it was perfect in that sense because it gave me time to process it all mm -hmm. with the people that I trusted the most. So when we came, when we emerged from lockdown in 2020 um, and sort of started going outside a bit more, fresh from the first Instagram post and all the sort of the bolstering that that did, I felt confident and, and fine. Actually, between that summer, so between June when the shave happened and then December, I actually almost grew a full head of hair back. Wow. Most people wouldn't know so much. I, I posted about it once, I think, on my Instagram, but I did. I had amazing regrowth. Wow. And then in December of 2020, I had a really severe panic attack. And in the weeks following, it all fell out again. Oh, kidding. And then it hasn't really grown back since. I will admit that that panic attack was slightly alcohol induced. Really? And that's something that I really know about myself now. I cannot let myself get to that level of like a hangover because everyone experiences anxiety. I get it really badly. And I'd had a couple of like heavy days and I hadn't experienced anything like it before. And I just, I was in the car with my mum and I started, I get this thing where I get pins and noodles all over my body and I sort of seize up and I can't move oh and she actually ended up driving me to hospital because I was I couldn't really breathe and she said that my eyes were rolling in my head so I just yeah oh kitty it was really intense but I think it's it's sort of this is what anxiety can do to your body and it's certainly what alcohol can do to your body yeah and it's not to say that I don't drink ever because I do but I just I know that I have to stop at some point because I never want to experience anything like that it's, so I think what you're saying is that if you have too much alcohol, then the next day, mm -hmm. the depletion of all of your happy brain chemicals <laughs> really contributes to the anxiety and the, the depths of negative bad feelings. Is yeah. that what's going on? And it's kind of, I can have one night where maybe I have a little bit too much and I feel not great the next day, but it's if I have like a few like really heavy nights, which is what I did over that period. And I hadn't, because of lockdown, I hadn't really done that since almost like my first year of university. And it absolutely reminded me that I don't always deal with alcohol in the best way or like the after effects of it. Kitty, I'm so glad you figured that out. I'm mm. sorry that you went through it. I'm so glad you figured it out. This is such a useful public service announcement because <laughs> I think people don't realize what's going on. They just think they're hungover. Yes. And if you really tune into what's happening and what mm. kind of day you have after too much alcohol, you mm. can really be like, do I really want to feel that way? Do I really want that experience? Mm. And just trying to remember that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have had hangovers since that have not been great, <laughs> yeah. but they have not been to that scale. Right. Because I know now if I drink consecutively, I just, I just know. And I, I, I'm more scared of that place than I am about maybe not having a great night because I'm not drinking as much as everybody else. I'm more scared of going back to that level of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I, I never want to be back in that place again because it was frightening. So Kitty, you have had two, three years living with this autoimmune condition, mm -hmm. starting to get to know the alopecia community. Mm -hmm. And how has that been going, like finding people who really can relate to your experience? It was really nice. I had people message me and just say, you know, I actually had a ball patch once or, you know, I know what you're going through. It was nice to find a community because even though you surround yourself with lovely caring people you need to find people who know 
exactly what you've gone through. And finding those people is so affirming and reading their stories and thinking, oh my God, we had the exact same experience. You know what this feels like. There's a real comfort in it because at the time, and I think maybe this is where lockdown wasn't so great, it was quite isolating. Mm -hmm. At that point, I hadn't really opened myself up to social media and I wasn't really looking on social media for people like this because in my head I was like, I'm alone. No one else knows what this feels like. But of course they do because alopecia is a condition. Other people have it. So basically when I put that post up, I, I hashtagged it quite heavily with alopecia stuff. And that's when I, I had maybe like 800 followers at the time, but they were all basically people I knew. And then my follow account went up because I then started following loads of people with alopecia and they started following me back. I would say I've taken my foot off the gas in terms of my alopecia presence online Mm. because I've reached a point now where I've kind of accepted that this is who I am. I kind of just don't feel the need to post about it all the time. If there's a big announcement or something within the alopecia community, like there's this new drug, it's called a jack inhibitor. It suppresses your immune system, but only around your hair follicles. So it gives your hair a fighting chance to grow back. And it's got like 70, 80% efficacy rate. It's, wow. it's incredible. And I follow a girl who's taking them right now and she has full head regrowth, which is incredible. It is actually available in the NHS for people with rheumatoid arthritis. But because the NHS, the alopecia is a cosmetic issue, oh, kitty. they do not prescribe it to people with alopecia. So probably in the hospital around the corner, they have that drug and it's the drug I need that could help my hair grow back. But because I don't have arthritis, I can't have it unless I pay like a ridiculous amount for it. It's currently being reviewed by the medical board. And I think the latest news coming out of the, the medical review board is that it's probably going to be a no. It's just, just insane. How can you say that alopecia is a cosmetic issue when by definition it's an autoimmune condition? My immune system is fighting my body, but also it's not just about that. The mental impact of it as well should be enough for people to realize. I know if I took that drug and my hair started coming back, my mental health would improve significantly. I hate that it comes down to that. You know, because I do try and have this approach of, oh, I don't really care about it anymore. Of course I care. Of course. I would love to have my hair back. But as it stands, it likely will never happen unless I can get access to this drug. Oh, gosh. So what are the steps that can be taken? Are the alopecia communities organizing around that? Yeah, so there's a, the charity is uh, Alopecia UK, and they are keeping everybody up to date. They sort of have people on the inside. I think they have people advising the medical boards. My only worry from a personal point of view is that they take into consideration your family history of cancer before they let you take it because it can leave your body open to that and my family history of cancer is not fantastic so that's my only worry with taking it I wouldn't want to put myself at risk yes but for everybody with alopecia oh it would just be fantastic it would give millions of people and especially women a new lease of life and I'm not discrediting male baldness when I say that for any guy that has lost his hair it must also be a really horrible feeling knowing that it's falling out but for a woman I just think it's that bit more because as a woman, you don't expect to lose your hair. And if any, if a, if a woman with alopecia is listening and they don't agree with me, that's fine. But I felt my femininity fall away when my hair, when I lost my hair. 
Well, you're living in a world that really values that aspect of femininity. Yeah. And you're just accepting that that is part of how you are seen and part of how the world is seen and evaluated. Mm -hmm. And until we get to a place where we genuinely don't care how other people see us, which is a very hard thing to accomplish, Mm -hmm. it's going to affect people. And I think you're saying women more than men because it's more unusual and women are judged differently, but you still have sensitivity for the fact that men are also affected. Yes. And emotionally affected in ways they may or may not say out loud. That's exactly it. Kitty, thank you so much for sharing your story, both on stage and also talking more about it today. It's been so nice to hear more about what's been happening for you. I really appreciate you sharing both the ups and the downs and letting us know how you're coping and getting on. I'm so glad you have support and it's really, really nice to see you again. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.